I want to come directly this morning to where we left off last week. And um, I thought that would be easy, but um, it, it, it becomes more like a hiccup that you suddenly start. And so if some of it overlaps, you understand. And of course, uh, for all of you, if you weren't here last week, that's okay. This stands on its own two legs, but also you can pick up last week on the video on YouTube. And so just to start and connect, um, reading from John's Gospel in chapter 1, and we, we saw that John and Andrew, and I say again, John was approximately 13 or 14 years old, and um, Andrew possibly 16, I mean, a couple of teenagers, and they come, and verse 37 of John chapter 1, the two disciples, they were at that point the disciples of John the Baptist. And now they heard him speak. They heard John the Baptist speak and speak concerning Jesus. And they, the two young guys, followed Jesus. That is, they went after him. And um, he, Jesus, heard the sound of their footsteps behind him. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, what do you seek or what do you really want? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And that's where we really got into it last week. The word staying there is abiding, which is a lot stronger word than staying. If I said where to Jesus at that time, where are you staying? It was probably in a sleeping bag on the side of the hills um, with another hundred or so people that were sleeping and just have a campfire and curl up and go to sleep till John starts his message in the morning. Um, no, this word is abiding, which means a continuing or remaining seamless um, covenant relationship. It, it's, it would be used um, of a husband and wife. You, you are remaining. It's a continuous. It, it's, it's not got any end in view. And, and then the word is abide. It means you put your roots down and you're here and you're here in a relationship that is here. And so what they're really asking is not, not where's your sleeping bag, but uh, who, who is it you're in relationship with? Who are you abiding with? It, it's something that goes beyond the house because this relationship goes outside your house. It goes wherever you are. You are in that relationship. And they were asking, who are you in the sense of where do you come from? Who Who is your... Relation. In, in fact, John has already told us in, in the preface to his gospel, which is only a few verses previous, before he gets into this history, he said, Jesus lived face to face with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. And the word with is pros in Greek, and it means literally face to face. 
I mean eye to eye, and that means without a blink, which means there are no secrets, there's no shame, there's no hanging your head, there's no doubts or lack of assurance. It is face to face with a steady gaze, and you see me and I see you, I know you, you know me. It's the idea of a holy nakedness before the other person. Um, and John said, that, that's what we're dealing with. In the beginning was the Word. This is Jesus, and, and He is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. In fact, the Word was there means He always was and now is um, God. And, and He shared deity with the Father. When I speak of the Father, I'm speaking of the Son, Son of the Father. And then he says, and, and not only that he was God as if sort of a blob. No, he said, there's the Father and there's the Son, and the Son is face to face with the Father. And then a little bit later down in that prologue, he says that this Word of God, this Son of God, um, his abiding was in the bosom or in the embrace of the Father's love. And so... We've already been set up for this. We, we know where Jesus had his abode, and it was in the Father, and the Father in him, in this relationship so complete and so intense that we say one God, three persons who are bound together in the most, well, I say the word intense again, and that's really not strong enough, a, a love that has no limits, a love that has no ending or finishing. It's a love that is ever coming and ever meeting, ever received, ever given to the point where the three are one. And so they said, where where do you abide? Um, t- tell us the context of your life. Tell us the dimension that you live in. And he said to them, come and you will see. And we saw that word see is not just look at. It means, and this is my translation, um, come and you'll have bug-eyed wonder. um, It was always used of something unexpected, surprising, a wow. And it was the word used when they saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And if you can sense how that feels, um, that's this word. And so they followed him, and that was the beginning of their journey. And I believe that John puts those words in there to describe the journey, because they are going to discover, and that's a better word than see, discover, you know, um, uh, the, the curtains pull back. They're going to see um that this reality that Jesus forever spoke of his father, not God, but his father. And that, well, if there's a father, then there's, there's a family. And, and, and Jesus, the family of the father, the son of God in the Holy Spirit. And they got, but then their question, where do you abide? sort of boomerangs, because when they discover where he abides, they'll discover where they abide. Um, When you know where Jesus dwells, you'll discover you're dwelling in the same place. And that's so vital, so vital. 
And so at the end of the journey, what we just read were the first minutes of the journey. They just met Jesus. Well, in chapter 17, these are the last words Jesus spoke before he's betrayed and suffers. And those last words were he is praying. And he's praying for the 12 disciples. But then in chapter 20 of John 17, Jesus said, I do not ask you, Father, in behalf of these, the 12, alone. So I'm not only praying for them, but for those also who believe in me because of what they say. Well, that includes all of us. And... um So what was he praying for all of us? That they may all be one. Listen, listen, listen. In fact, if I just repeated this for the next hour, it might sink in. That they, you all, may be one. What do you mean? Even, even, even as thou, Father, art in me that as the Holy Trinity is bound together, so you be bound together in the same love, that even as I, Jesus, am in the Father in exactly the same way you would be in the Father, as I dwell in his love face to face, that's where we're going, that's who you are. Even as thou, Father, art in me, and I am in thee, that they, they is you, they may be one. They may be in us. Even as thou, Father, art in me, I in thee, they also may be in us. And now, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. Therein is the only key to evangelism that Jesus gave. That's it. When you know that you are in Christ the same way as he is now in the Father, and you are wrapped up in the Father and the Son, Jesus said, that's it. The world will see that. And then they'll believe that I I came here from the Father to get you. Um, So forget all your crusades, all your four spiritual laws, forget all knocking on doors, and just understand who you are, and the world will believe. Okay. You haven't heard anything yet. Verse 22. (laughs) Listen, the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. So the glory of God is in his unity of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in love. Now he said, I've included them. And so the glory, that is the glory of God, is given to us, in our union with Jesus, and now we share in that glory by addressing him as Father in the Holy Spirit. That's the end of the story.
we we looked at the beginning of the story that's the end of the story that's where it's going to and um and so um that's what i want to look at um the incarnation because that's where it all begins it's easy to say well we know about that and i don't think we do the incarnation have i ever realized what it means that god the son this one we've been talking about joined himself to the human god became human not just looked like him not just a human mask sort of a divine halloween um no he became human without ever ceasing to be god so any idea that god is separate from the human race is shot down right there that god has actually become human and therefore his name is emmanuel meaning god with us now why did he do that i i heard a very famous evangelist once say well <clears throat> it's it's like there's an anthill and the anthill is about to be destroyed <clears throat> and so one of the humans becomes an ant so he can tell all the other humans we go into hell whoopee that's the gospel isn't it you know okay um that's what most are raised with but that's their extent of understanding the incarnation god became us why did he become us you ever ask that it's one thing to say i believe that he did why did he why on earth would god become one of us and become one of us it means that he who created us he who rolled out the original blueprint of who we are now himself comes to be that blueprint face to face in our eyes that is you and i were created it's our blueprint we're cre- we're wired for this created to be those in whom god dwells and is perfectly at home that's our blueprint the lie of eden totally he says you shall be as god independent of god you shall be as god that's the great lie yes, yeah. so the creator the origin of the blueprint now says this is what you were intended to look like here is god dwelling comfortably inside the human and he came to reveal to us who we were always intended to be incarnation it's now displayed before us in the creator he becomes human to show us who we really are and by the time he's finished he will have found us in the darkness have rescued us out of the darkness by his blood 
and carried us to the right hand of the Father where we sit in him face to face with the Father. We're home and we're to the original blueprint. So the whole of the ministry of Jesus, you could say, is declaring a new day in which humankind would actually come to know God intimately, personally, relationally, face-to-face with the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. That's why he came. He's going to actually pour into us the same knowledge that he has of the Father so that we know, but not independently, always he came and he found us. Okay, put that on hold for a minute because there's something that is very real in everything that I have studied over the years of the love of God and of salvation. I've always come back to this question. Why are the Pharisees so dominant in the Gospels? Um just for the heck of it, one time I took the Pharisees out of the Gospels. Do you know there wasn't much left? Most of what Jesus said was in response to the Pharisees. Never thought about that. Any problem with his miracles, it was because of the Pharisees. That gives me a massive question. Because the Pharisees... Well, let me say carefully, they worshipped, or at least they that's what they thought they were doing, so I'll use the term, they worshipped, at least in name, the same God as all the Old Testament greats. Take David, and they would be very aware of David because they memorized all the Psalms, and the psalms were sung in the temple and in the synagogues, and they'd be very aware of David. So the Pharisees, they, in name, knew and worshipped the same God as David worshipped. They used the same book of the law as David did. And yet they came to the most radical, different conclusions. Their God was unrecognizable as the one David sang and danced and loved. How? And this is, I'm not sort of building you up for some, I'm asking the question, how on earth can you have the same God, the same book, and come to such different conclusions. David saw a new God as good. David exploded, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Unfailing, unconditional love. All through the Psalms, it's loving kindness, loving kindness, loving kindness, which is the Old Testament word for unconditional covenant love. And along with that was faithful. 
He's faithful. He's good. I would have despaired unless I had believed to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. He said he was there. He's faithful as David. And David, who could reach those heights, was the biggest screw-up of the Old Testament. He sinned, failed. And yet, what does he say? That... Come according to your loving kindness. He didn't appeal to the law. He went straight through to the heart of God. And then he wrote and said, Oh, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. He knew a God of real relationship, by which I mean, he, he... even when he's upset with God because he doesn't understand what's happening, it doesn't stop him talking to him. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, I mean, actually, some of the Psalms, they're written in beautiful English. David didn't write it in beautiful Hebrew. <laughs> David was David was a shepherd, and if you read this, yeah, the King James version is majestic. It's beautiful, but. <laughs> I, I won't even tell you what some of the things say, but if you translate them literally, what, what um, Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, he said there's Hebrew and then there's shepherd Hebrew. And, yeah, and he said they won't let me translate it into shepherd Hebrew. It's too rough. It's too, yeah. I mean, he, he said, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, David says, I'm in all this trouble. Where are you, God? He's angry. He's not making a beautiful psalm. No, he's angry. He said, I lay on my bed and I soak my pillows with tears. Where are you? Okay, that's relationship. Relationship isn't always saying nice things. He's angry. Once answers, cried out to God. But also, above all, David knew union with God that we cannot really better in the New Testament. David said, the I am, Yahweh, um, the one our Bible is called the Lord, um, but David knew him as I am. And he says, I am is my. That's complete union. He said, all that God is, he is mine. And, and expressed in me and through me. David said that. Oh, I jumped to Noah. What does he say? Noah walked with God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Go on to Abraham. Abraham walked with God. I could keep going. Even Moses spoke with him face to face, which wasn't a complete, okay, he said, you can't look at my glory. But even so, when he went into the tent, he came out with his face glowing. The Pharisees not only read that, but they memorized it word for word from when they were four years old. But they were strangers to this. Strangers, total strangers. But in fact, they were antagonistic to what I've just been saying. Who were the Pharisees? Because they were not just Jews. That They were what? It was a sort of guild. It was a sort of a... 
Well, I suppose you would say today it was a denomination, but, but they were a group who had bound themselves together with vows that they would never forsake the law of God. They would never turn to idols because where they're standing, and it took place about 60 to 100 years before the New Testament when they bound themselves together, and they looked back the trouble we are in the Babylonian captivity, the Persian captivity, the Greek captivity, now the Roman captivity. Well, how did we get here? Because of idolatry, we turn to the Baals. We will never, and I, we will never turn to idols. We will keep the law of God. And so they made the vow and they called it they took upon themselves the yoke of the law. Like animals are yoked together, so they said we are yoked to the law. The law being the first five books of the Bible, but then they went on, memorized all the Psalms, the prophets. They could basically just speak the Bible, the Old Testament, without looking. They memorized all the laws, but then in case you broke one, they had 2,000 extra laws to make sure you never got to breaking the original law. They engaged in hours of prayer and they would not be moved from that. And so if they were in the shopping mall at that hour, they would stand and raise their hands and pray in loud voice. They fasted Wednesdays and Fridays. They tithed, and not like the, the modern takeoff on that. Uh, that's three tithes plus the Feast of first fruits. So you tithed three times on your income, and also everything you owned, the first fruits, that is the first lettuce to grow in your garden, the first newborn cow, donkey, whatever. Golly, indeed. And of course, in keeping all the laws, in order to be pure and holy, they wouldn't even contact or touch or talk to sinners, which amounted basically to anyone who isn't like me. They love to compare. Because if you're going to be holy, you need to be around unholy people to show you how holy you are. I'm not like him. Good grief, I'm not like her. Thank you, O oh God. It was a Pharisee. But it, it they started out with a jolly good idea. It, it was simply that they were going to uh, try with their own willpower to achieve that end. And, and so the um, picture that emerges of these people that had no experiential knowledge of the covenant, of the love of God, of the union that God had initiated, even though it wasn't as glorious as in, in the New Testament, it was there, it was there. Certainly David knew that and, and Isaiah speaks of it. It's What on earth happened at such a high and beautiful 
determination would end up in this mess because of all the people that ever came into touch with Jesus, it was the Pharisee that he always confronted. Have you noticed that? He, he never confronted the tax collectors like this. He sat down, he ate, wow. drank with them. He stood beside adulterers and prostitutes and said, neither do I condemn you. He sat down with the woman at the well and said, I've got water, I've got the gift for you. After he'd already said, I I know your problem, you've had five husbands, and I know about that, but I've just come here to give you a gift. He never said that to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, he turned on them, he says, you are of your father the devil. Good grief. I would have I would have said that to Annas or Caiaphas or Pilate or no it was said to the Pharisees. Only sink that in to the Pharisees. He said, "You Pharisees, you are like a, a saucepan that was used last week in the kitchen and they didn't wash it. You're full of stinking rotten leftovers, and you look great on the outside, but in the inside you stink." Well, he said, you're a nest of snakes and vipers. What? He said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Boy, do you look good. They keep the outside. But you're really full of dead men's bones. I I guess, how? I say again, how could they read and study and memorize most of the Old Testament without any thought that the God they worshipped was the opposite of what they're reading. They're reading it and they don't know it. And they say, it's okay, I'm worshipping God, I'm keeping the law. How did they become so blind? And Jesus said they were intentionally blind. They wanted to pursue this other goal. They had replaced the relationship of I am is my with I will separate myself and I will do the law and you will be pleased. So their religion was self-help. Their Bible, the Old Testament law, well, that was just a book of instruction. Told them about the law. It was given by what to them was a faceless deity. I don't know who he is. Got a, got a name, but because we are so holy and he is so, so holy, he's too holy to look at us and so we won't even mention his name. And he became the nameless, faceless deity that they were trying to please. That, that's the ultimate of spiritual blindness which means tax collectors weren't as blind as that. I I want you to hear. Prostitutes were not as blind as that. In fact, Jesus said, tax collectors and prostitutes will be in the kingdom of God before you guys. This, this is what I've talked about, dementia. I don't even know who God is. I've forgotten my parent. Don't know what he wants. 
This is the darkness the Bible calls death. You want the power of sin? This was it. Again, not not tax collectors. Tax collectors are very willing to listen. But Pharisees, now you're talking about sin. I would go as far, and I know some people will have a problem, but this is Antichrist. See, Antichrist, Antichrist, especially in the Greek, doesn't mean against. You know, people look for an Antichrist who's against. No, no, no. Antichrist in the Bible means one who takes the place of. The they actually had a, the Caesar of Rome. There was an anti-Caesar. We call him the vice president. He's the one that's ready to step in and, and become the Caesar. Antichrist is the one that steps in and says, I, I'm the Christ. This is Pharisee. See, the, the tax collectors... They, they, they knew they were wrong. They had no aspiration of saying, we've got the God. No. But these, the religious, they, they interacted with a book. That, that's that's the, the whole thing. They interacted with a book. To them, the book was holy. The book had to be memorized. The book completely controlled their lives. And once they had the, the, the book, they didn't really want to know the author of the book. Yeah. They fell in love with the pages of the book. Yes. They worshipped the words on the pages. Yeah. And I, I've been... I lived in New York for a number of years where we became very, well, I won't say close, but I knew a lot about the Hasidic Jews in New York. And they take a scroll of the law, the law of Moses, first five books of the Bible, they take the scroll and they plaster it with honey and have their children lick the honey so that they associate the law with something precious, sweet, um, there are times when the adults will embrace the law and dance with the law. Oh, we well see, it's a book. There's no reference whatsoever to a person. It's the book. And in the book, I, I receive all the instructions. And I, I've lost the, the person uh, if I talk about union, it's union with the book. It's union with the laws that it talks of. And therefore my response is, I'll try and do it. I'll try and do it. But they've lost the person. Can, can you, you, you hear me? Yeah. And they way outdid any Sunday school today where you get a little pin for memorizing if they, if they had pins from memorizing, it would be dragging like a tail behind them. They had, I say again, memorized the law. Beginning at four years old through 12 years old, they memorized the first five books of the Bible to the point where now it's part of their speech. They, it's not, you know, Deuteronomy 20. No, no, they just 
they knew it. Back dropped into their speech. They could talk about it. At 12 years old. Then they went to the Psalms and the prophets. They knew the book. They knew the book. But the book was... They, they looked at it through the, the glasses, the lens of self-help. I will keep this. I will do this. And we'll invent other laws so that we don't even get to breaking God's laws. Because the other laws only took them further and further and further away from the God who is love, the God who is covenant, unfailing love. It's just the laws that I'm going to keep, the laws that I'm going to prove to God. I really, really mean this. Um, I don't want to, you know, push that. But I'm asking the question, how do you lose relationship? How do you miss it? And, and you, you, you miss it because you're trying to keep a law to convince a faceless, nameless judge that I'm a good person. And so I, if you would address them, which essentially Jesus does on more than one occasion, their response would be, well, that was another era. You know, that's what happened in those days. It doesn't happen anymore today. We're just left with the law. I've heard that a thousand times. Ask anybody in the denominations of Protestantism and Catholicism. I asked him, well, where were the miracles? Where is this intimate religion? Oh, well, that, that ended. The Holy Spirit just walked away. We, we were left around the fifth century just to get on with this and try and... And yet, swear on their heart, I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. I memorize it in Sunday school. But you don't believe the Bible. You say it's for another day. It's another age. It's... Doesn't make sense. And yet, the Bible of these Pharisees was full of relationship. Look, how many times, well, maybe, go through the Old Testament, especially at the beginning of the prophets. What do the prophets say? How did they come to write what they wrote? It says, the word of the Lord came to me. What is the word? Who is the word of the Lord? They were saying that the Jesus before his incarnation came to them. And that's how you get the prophets. Yeah, I could really go on. That I think is enough to say. They ignored all of that and read it as a book about what God demanded instead of discovering a living personal God. He was a God not to be known. He was a God to be obeyed. He was a God to be cowered before. He was a God to be called holy. And you went to the synagogue or the temple and you gave praise to that God, but you didn't know him, nor ever expected to. But you see, Jesus is David's God Jesus is the word of the Lord now in flesh. God has 
become one of us, the God of the Old Testament is looking out through the eyes of Jesus when he spoke to the Pharisees. They are now dealing with the God who's revealed in the Old Testament. And what did they do? They tried to kill him right from the get-go. Why? Because the power that operates in religion that merely wishes to know about God and try and please a faceless deity, that is not only the opposite of God's unconditional love, but it seeks with all its passion to shut him up and kill him. Religion. Isn't it amazing? It was these people who actually sat down with the Roman Empire to kill Jesus, not the tax collectors. There wasn't a tax collector in the court that tried to condemn Jesus. There was never a prostitute that stood up and said he's a bad person. Every one of them were these people. Every person that condemned Jesus to death were persons who could repeat by memory the whole of the Old Testament and said, this man's an imposter. But just a minute, you're reading a... Jesus said it, didn't he? He said, you search the scriptures. And the word search there means, I mean, you won't leave a stone unturned. But you will not come to me. And they, although they testify of me. I'm all over the Old Testament. You won't come to me. They preferred the words about the person rather than the person himself. And of course that spills over because the God you worship is the way you live. You can't separate it. You don't have to try and do anything. Just the God you believe and trust in is the way you live. So to them he was just the remote judge then what will I live? I'll be your judge. I'll please him. I'll be like him. I'll judge you. And so they compared themselves to everybody and said, we're better than you. If they touched a sinner in the marketplace, they would take a bath, change their clothes, despising the way they walk. You can tell it. I, I can always tell someone who's despising me by the way they walk and look at me. And all Jesus said, he never said, he never said, don't hang out with tax collectors. You never know where that will lead to. He did say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Because he said, leaven, you know what that is. You put it in and overnight the bread has been taken over. Yeah. Knowing about him. Well... Where do you stay, Jesus? That's all we've ever known. They were looked upon by every Galilean peasant as, if you want to really know God, you'd better be a Pharisee. Where do you stand, Jesus? Where do you abide? Where do you live? He said, come and see, and your eyes will bug out. Because I, I like the way John said it. Because he could have said, I mean, the disciples, 
to John the Baptist. So now, how do we act if we become your disciples? So, what, what do I have to do as a disciple? That'd be a good question. What are your demands of me? Be good. Well, actually, the question was asked at one point by John's disciples when they said, when do we have to pray? What hours of the day do we have to pray? What time should we have our quiet time? How, how much do we have to give of our money? Yeah. I'm not. <laughs> How, how often do we have to fast if we're your disciples? Jesus drew that line in the sand. And we've looked, I, I think we talked about this last week. We look at it as one of the beautiful things, you know, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And that's nice, you know, sweet. That was a war cry. Jesus was putting the gauntlet down in front of every Pharisee. Listen, do you, have you heard it? Come to me all who are weary. Weary of what? This. I'm weary of no relationship to God, but trying to do my best to try and please a God who never smiles. Aren't you weary of that? Aren't you sick and tired of it? Heavy laden. 2,000 laws that aren't even in the Old Testament burdening you down. I, I don't have any laws. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Do you remember what I said? Pharisees, to become a Pharisee, you took the yoke of the law. Jesus said, break it, take my yoke, I will give you rest. And then, the upper room. Now he's sitting down to tell them what this is all about. You've been with me now, you've seen, you've heard. In the next few hours, you won't have a clue what's going on. So let me tell you where this is going. And he talks the whole time about relationship. How many times have you read Romans, uh, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17? That was all in the upper room the night of which he was betrayed. These are the last words of Jesus. He told them, I'm going. And where I'm going, you cannot come. This I do alone. And you will not understand. But hang in there. You know. So what do I... Dare I say this? The night... He's going to the cross. He doesn't mention dying for sin. But you would think, if that's what it's all about, you would think he would tell them. And he would need five chapters 
to tell them how rotten they are, how corrupt, and how he's got to die to get your filthy sinners into heaven. And if I don't, then you'll all go to hell. He didn't mention it. The, the, the closest to mentioning it is what we do here every, every Sunday morning. When Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. He did that at the beginning of that night. So that's it. After that, it's relationship. That's all he talks about. He talks about this continuing, seamless, abiding union of persons. Relationship, knowing a person face to face. Knowing who I am, who you are, and living in love together. Relationship, living, resting in what he's done for us. And now we're living this life of union together. Relationship, it's about love received, love given, resting in love. Relationship is when your eyes are opened to see with speechless wonder the worth that he has placed on you. It's finding your worth in the face and words of the beloved. And you hear how he sees you. I've said this before, you know, when, when especially I think shows in the women, um, come into the office all glowing. And what's the matter with them? And they show you the ring on their finger. Why, why are they glowing like that? Because you didn't used to glow. You were the office mouse. And nobody noticed you and you just... Now you're as radiant as a lighthouse. But what's happened? You have seen yourself... In the eyes of love. Somebody has communicated to you your worth as you have never seen yourself before. And you trusted what they said. And that's just human. This relationship is seeing yourself in the eyes of of Jesus, which are the eyes of the Father, which is enlightened by the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit says, you are the beloved of God. For you I come. For you I die. Because you have been chosen to be in the relationship with the Holy Trinity. And you start glowing. Because you're not seeing yourself through the eyes of a satanic lie. Uh You're seeing yourself through the eyes of God. If you're a Pharisee, you're a slave. That's where the word religion is coined. Religion. The word means in English, because it's not an English word. But in English it means a return to bondage. That's being a Pharisee. You are bound to the law. You are bound to a God who has no name and no face. 
But when we come to the real God, he not only has a face, a human face, but he tells us in plain English of his love for us and introduces us not to a new set of laws, but to a relationship in which we discover that we are the sons and daughters, which means we're no longer slaves. We, we have part in, in the family. And so he starts, in my father's house are many abiding places. Same word that was used way at the beginning. In my father's house are many abiding places. In my father's house, there's not only room for me to abide, there's room for every one of you of the human race. And then he says something very significant. If it were not so, I would have told you. Meaning, this isn't something I'm just cooking up at the last minute. This is why I came. You've been with me since the beginning. And if this wasn't my mission, I would have told you what my mission was. But this is my mission. Always has been. I go to prepare a place for you. Where did he go? To the cross. To death. To resurrection. And in that he prepared a place for you. The stupidity of thinking that Jesus is the eternal contractor who's building houses for you. No, I'm serious because people believe that. There's there's well-documented books that say it. I won't even go there. (laughs) And when, when he says... I go to prepare a place for you immediately after. If I go, or seeing as I will be going, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And that is not the second coming. Every time the Bible says come, it doesn't mean second come. The disciples didn't have a clue about the first coming, let alone introduce a second one. No. When, when did, if I go and prepare, I will come again. When did he come again? In the resurrection. He left. As far as they were concerned, he's gone. He came back. And what were the first words he said? The first words. He's out of the tomb and he's speaking to Mary. He said, I ascend to my father and your father. First time he'd ever said that. He said, I'm going to the father and you're coming with me. I accomplished it. I found you. I got my arms around you. I carried you to death. Now you're recreated in me and we're going to the father. I will come and receive you to myself. That is, you will come into me as I am in you. You will know me as I know you. You, in fact, will be one with me as I am with the Father. And we are going to the Father. And then you're in the Father like I'm in the Father. 
That's the gospel. That where I am, see, John started this by saying, where are you? Took him three years to explain that. Now he says that where I am, where are you, Jesus, in the Father? Where I am, there you may be also. How do you get there? It's what Thomas said. Jesus said, I am the way. That is, you don't have to get there. I came to get you. The get is not on your side of the formula. He, he came to get. He is the way. And he doesn't show us the way. He doesn't lead the way. He is the way. The truth. That's reality. Truth in New Testament means absolute foundational reality. Everything else is passing, it's phony, it's an appearance, here today, gone tomorrow. But this is unbegun, unending reality. And that is so real that the average person that we know today can't stand it. It hurts. Do you remember the C.S. Lewis book, The Great Divorce? Do you remember that? It's an interesting book. Um, and it's one of C.S. Lewis's fantasy stories. And a London bus goes to hell to bring people on a tour for heaven. And they come to heaven as tourists and see if they'd like to stay. And um, when they get off the bus, the grass hurts their feet. Because the grass is real. And in hell they're all unreal. As unreal as humans are today. And they put their foot on the grass and the grass pierces their feet. Because it's so real. Do you see what Lewis was trying to say? Heaven is real. Pharisees as unreal. They're just one great big musk. What you see on the outside does not match what's inside. You're a clean saucepan full of last week's vegetables. You're a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. You're not real. You're not authentic. You sing on Sunday morning in the church and you live a totally different life on Monday. You're not authentic. It's not real. No, he said, I am the way, I'm the reality. And that reality is life. What's it says right back there in the beginning of John, in that prologue, he who is face to face with the Father, in him was life. That is life for a human being. That is what life is. Even as I have taken humanity to show you, life is when you're face to face with the Father. That's life. So what's eternal life? Going to heaven, living forever? No, 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 no. He tells us right in these verses in chapter 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you and know me. That's eternal life. Begins right here and now. 
verse 20 of chapter 14, it's the peak of what he had to say that night. He says, in that day, that day in being when I've risen from the dead, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father. There, I've said it. I'm in my, you wanted to know where I stay, where I abide? In that day, you will know it. Absolutely, you will know it. I am in my Father. And you are in me. I mean, take four days just to read this verse. 3,000 times. In that day, you will know who I really am. I am God from God. I am the Son in the Father. But I am the Son who came and became you. So that you in me and I in you, we're in the Father together. And he says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. He said, just the same way our relationship with the Father, so us and then us with the Father. Relationship. That day, the day of the new covenant, you will without question know, intimately, personally know And you will know that I abide, that I live continually in the Father, and I abide, live continually in you, and you abide, live continuously in me. I I remember the honor student, let's say that, the honor student of a very well-known denomination, he went to their university and he was the honor student. And he came out and was given the peach churches and and um, ended up with a gun in his hand out in the southwest desert ready to kill himself. Mm-hmm. And for some reason I forget, he came to me in San Antonio. And... Um, he told me all his resume of all his accolades. And, and then he gave me his journal and I flipped through it. And I didn't see one reference there to Jesus. At the best, it was a reference to God. And so I said, I, I have the answer to your problem. You've got to know Jesus. And, I mean, he got very angry. But I was speaking to the honor student of the Bible school, telling him who was the pastor of the best and great to know Jesus. I said, you don't have a clue who Jesus is. I said, it shows up in your words. It shows up in your journal. You don't know who Jesus is. You know about him. But he's not worth writing about in your journal. There's no communication. And he later gave his testimony. uh, And he said, you know, 
what I've just told you. And, and he said, I'm at the end of my rope. And he said, a man who looked like Santa Claus said I needed to know Jesus. <laughs> but do, do, you see how simple the gospel is. I mean, he got it right. Here I've got accolades coming out of my ears. Um, I've got all the degrees and all the whole denomination thinks I'm fantastic. What's the gospel? What more do I have to do? How much longer do I have to pray? No. Flush it down the toilet. You need to know Jesus. That's it. And in knowing Jesus, you'll discover who you are. It's... We, in that last chapter, and I'll quit on this, that prayer, we, we took that as a sort of secondary text. Let me say it again, John seventeen twenty. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the 12 disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. This is what I'm praying. This is what Jesus, God, Speaking to God. God talking to God about you. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me. Phariseeism puts whatever God they know so remote you wouldn't even know a thing about. Jesus brings that right down and says that even as I know the Father... Now, you are going to know me and the Father. Even as you, Father, are in me, even as you are in me, and I am in you, that they, they, you all, they, may all also, also be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me. That the world may know that you sent me, and that the world may know that you loved them, even as you have loved me. There's not two kinds of God love. The way God the Father loves the Son is the same way as he loves you. And I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. It's a union, as I say... I could just say those words until the Holy Spirit makes them real. That's that's the gospel. Yes, it is. That's the gospel. Now you say, well, didn't he die for our sin? Of course he did. Had to get that out of the way in order to come to this. But dealing with sin was not the end, you see. To to say that Jesus came to achieve the forgiveness of our sin, period, 
That means you'll spend the rest of your life thinking about sin and making sure you're forgiven. The forgiveness of sin was necessity. Of course it was. And it took the blood of Jesus to do it. But that wasn't the terminus. That's not where the train pulled into the last station. We had to do that in order to achieve the purpose of God that was in place before creation. That you should be adopted into the family of God and know the Father face to face. And of course, this all began, didn't it, when I, when I said I didn't believe that heaven was a place. Boy, did that stir up a bunch of bees. Um, what I'm trying to say is that this Phariseeism makes it a place. Because the last person you want to meet there is this faceless God. And that's why, that's why the, the gospel of many people today is to ask a question of their neighbor, do you want to go to heaven when you die? That's the daftest question ever asked. Your, your neighbor's been trying to escape God all his life, and now you say, do you want to live with him forever? But the picture, the picture that is given, the Pharisee picture of heaven is just a place of happiness. You fill in the blank. No, absolutely no. Heaven, whatever we mean by that, is a place of knowing God without any restriction, without any shadows between, knowing that he knows you, the place of absolute maskless reality, authenticity. I am who God made me. And he is who he is. And he loves me. And I am drawn into that love. That's heaven. Heaven is not just a happiness that you make up. I I told you, didn't I? I, One of the guys that came to my church in Brooklyn, well, he he sort of dropped in. He was uh, not yet, didn't know Jesus. And some ardent little evangelist, came and said the same old stuff to him on the street, you know. Do you want to go to heaven when you die? He said, you bet. And he told me about it, you see. And I said, you said, yes. I said, what, what do you think heaven is? And he said, man, it's mountains of cocaine. Well, no one told him otherwise. He made it up. I've met others. I want to go to heaven. Why? I want to see my mother again. Do you see what I mean? Is it? No. You don't. No. You, You go face to face with God. You live in the blazing light of love. But supposing you hate him. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, it will be the same for you. You will be stuck with the love of God that will never quit loving you, never leave you alone, and there's nowhere to run. But that's the same place as me. You see, I told someone the other day, my address is the lake of fire. The lake of fire, the lake of God's blazing love. 
That's where I live. But a person who hates him, that's where they live too. But it's torment, it's agony. It's a state we're talking about, not a place. It's not to the right or to the left. It's living in the presence of God, you cannot escape. Huh. We, we, we think, we, you know, I've got to let Jesus into my heart. Well, that's okay. Because I should tell you, he's already let you into his heart. And that's why you can let him into your heart, because you're already there, you see. And you're just waking up to it and seeing it. We've got a lot of things backwards. But it's all relationship, it's abiding, it's living inside his love. And just to quieten some of you down, uh, no, a relationship seeks a place. Relationship exists without a place. There, there is a very real sense in which Cheryl is my home and I am her home. And we could live like that. But relationship seeks a place to put and seeks a place that will manifest that relationship. And so when you come into the place, you can almost smell the relationship. You feel it. And even the things on the shelves and the pictures on the wall reflect the relationship. And so I'm, I, I'm not saying heaven isn't a place. I'm saying it's maybe not a place that people think it is. Yeah. Yeah. But the relationship, which is the isness of heaven, yes. that has already begun here. Mm-hmm. And therefore, heaven is merely passing through a veil to be where you've always been, except now with nothing between. But any any place there will just reflect that relationship. Um, well, there it is. That's. I think. I won't promise, but I think I'm done <laughs> with this. So, Father, thank you. Thank you. What else can we say that we, who are begun creatures? who began in your mind and began by your creative fingers, brought us forth in the womb, that we should now look at you as we sit inside of Jesus and he inside of us, and we can now communicate with the invisible Father, Abba, who loves us, Father, as you love Jesus. What a gospel. What a glory. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, to see who we are, who you are. And let us walk out such a love in the world around us. Amen. Amen. And amen.